0: Welcome to Discover Healthier. Everything you need to know about health brought to you by Discovery Health. I'm Azania Musaka. You can join the conversation as we explore some of the most pressing matters in the healthcare environment today. Our wide variety of topics and specialist guests will empower you to care for your health now and in the future. If there's one thing that the world has learned in 2020, one thing that the COVID 19 pandemic has driven home, it's how important it is that a country has a thriving healthcare system, one in which healthcare professionals can aspire to the greatest heights and in which they are empowered and really supported to serve their patients. Well, what role does business have to play in making this happen? Well, did you know that a number of the public sector doctors at the forefront of the response to COVID-19 in our country are recipients of grants from the Discovery Foundation? Well, these awards have allowed them to advance their careers in incredible ways, ultimately to give us access to world-class medical care right here at home. In this episode of the Discover Healthier podcast series, we have the privilege of spending time with two absolutely passionate and inspiring doctors, obstetrician and gynecologist Professor Salome Maswime, as well as nuclear medicine physician Dr. Dineo Empagna. Both of them are Discovery Foundation grant recipients, and we will hear all about the ways in which their work has been influenced by this support. So what is the Discovery Foundation? Well, who better to answer this question for us than Dr. Vincent Mapai, Chairperson of the Discovery Foundation. Dr. Mapai, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Azania, and good afternoon.
0: So let's start by explaining and getting a sense of what the Discovery Foundation is. What is it exactly?
1: It is an independent trust which was set up in 2006 by the Discovery Board as part of its BEE arrangements. And it was really set up with two broad aims, and we will go into detail Mm. to the extent that you think it's necessary. But the first aim was to strengthen the health system so that now people have access to specialized healthcare services. We invested over 261 million rand in grants to support academic medicine through research, development, and training of medical specialists in South Africa. And we hope that within 20 years we will spend $300 million. And the second thrust of the foundation was transformation mm. because we know that there was both racial and gender imbalance at the high echelons of the medical profession. And the aim was to narrow that gap and so what we do now is we target that 75% of beneficiaries mm-hmm. are black or that at least 75% of total financial support goes to the people who are beneficiaries of a BEE.
0: I'd love to look at the focus areas. What are the foundation's focus areas and why is their focus on building up academic medicine uh, in order to ensure a legacy of excellence in local health care?
1: Well, first of all, let me give you a context to how we arrived at the focus areas. Mm. At the time in 2006, we noticed that there was not sufficient number of high-level personnel in in the country in general and that the system was not training enough people. Medical education is very long and expensive and the medical teaching corps was not replacing itself You have skills migration from the country abroad and from urban, from rural areas to urban areas. And most significantly, the private and public sector imbalance in terms of skills. 66% of the medical people are in private sector, while the rest are in public sector. And I've already referred to race and gender imbalances. So it was against this background that uh, we... Notice a very, very serious irony about South Africa.
2: Mm.
1: One, that we have a great legacy in medical research, invention, and technological information. I mean, heart transplant was managed in this country for the first time, and the CAT scans machine was discovered in South Africa and is used worldwide. Mm. And yet in the middle of this massive achievement, the majority of South Africans are unable to afford anything beyond just basic health education. So we carried out serious research into the system to arise at our focus areas. And the bulk of our focus area was that we must aim at training medical specialists for rural areas, developing academic medicine and research centers, and increasing the number of sub specialists in the country to meet the country's healthcare needs adequately. And within those broad areas, of course, there are other subdivisions. I don't know if you want to go into that minute detail
0: let's first talk about I think the background and the experience that you bring to this position and the details of that will emerge in the course of our conversation but you have such vast experience in many leading organisations I just want to quickly kind of summarise the illustrious career that you've had from being the Executive Director of Corporate Affairs and Transformation at South African Breweries to being the Chairperson of BHP Billiton in South Africa and then before that, Corporate Affairs Director of the South African Breweries and non executive chair of Castle Breweries in Namibia. In an academic context, we see your career spanning two decades where you have taught at various universities, both locally and abroad. You've consulted with several blue chip companies on many HR issues. You've also worked as research executive director of social dynamics at the Human Sciences Research Council for three years. You served on the boards of various companies as non executive chair. And you've chaired the South African Broadcasting Corporation, as well as the Presidential Review Commission into the restructuring of the public sector and influence policy in the South African Responsible Gambling Trust. So you have had just such a vast career. So you bring immense experience to this board. How does this view in your role as foundation chair
1: well, first of all, thanks for those kind words. I feel like applying for a job to you after those <laughs> illustrious <laughs> comments that we have made. But my career centered on three pillars, which was 22 years in academia, 15 years in the private sector. And throughout this engagement, I was also involved in a public sector in an advisory capacity. I've almost worked with every president in the country. And if you ask me, what do I bring on the table? I think what I bring is understanding of these various actors, because health is not a technical issue.
2: Mm.
1: Health is a political issue. Health is a human rights issue. Health is a social issue. It's about all of those things. And I think my job in an interesting way was perhaps not easy, but certainly simple. If you are in my position, all you need is the ability to put a team together to deliver on your aims and objectives. Mm. But more than that, you need to hold that team together and make sure that it is focused on the work. This is what drives me as a person. I don't like to be sidetracked from what we are trying to achieve And I always say, if you are chasing a buffalo, don't get sidetracked by impalas or rats and mice. (laughs) And I guess my ability is to focus on what we have to do and to bring together on board the experience I've drawn in all those sectors that you have generously mentioned. And I think as chair or as a leader of any organization, You are as good as the people around you. And I guess I like to work with people. I know that there's a leader you may inspire, but at the end of the day, it's going to be the team that delivers.
0: Yes. And let's look at the work of the team and the foundation because the foundation has five award categories. Can you tell us briefly about them and how they actually support academic healthcare excellence?
1: Indeed. The first one, is not in any specific order, is the Academic Fellowship Award. And this one is for PhDs and master's degrees by dissertation.
2: Mm.
1: or oh, yeah. And here it goes back to the point that we made earlier that we have identified that the people involved in primary health care are totally tertiary institutions. You cannot have an excellent primary health care. Without an excellent tertiary care, and that's why we are focusing on increasing those medical academics. The second one is the subspecialist award. And here we look at the various subspecialists, you know, doctors who specialize in children, brain, cardiores, and all of those. We put lots of resources in there. And we have special awards for rural and underserved areas. And here is to address that issue I mentioned earlier of migration from rural to urban areas. And we are trying to support the rural areas, which are always forgotten and marginalized almost every year. Mm. And the fourth one, the Excellence Award, the aim there is to recognize any organization that shows excellence in education, service delivery, training and innovation over a long term. And these organizations are doing excellent work under very, very difficult circumstances. And of course, we have the Massachusetts General Hospital Award, and the fundamental aim of this one is to create the next generation of leaders in academic medicine. It is in partnership with Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston.
0: Yes, as part of this podcast episode, in fact, we'll be featuring a conversation with Professor Salome Maswime as well as Dr. Dineo Mpagna. Can we start by looking at Professor Maswime because she received the Massachusetts General Hospital Award. Let's look further into the MGH Award and what is the strategic intent? How did you manage to secure this partnership? And how does the funding provide cover? How long have you been running this partnership with the Massachusetts General Hospital?
1: Well, the Fellowship Award, as I said, was introduced in 2013 in partnership with the MGH Hospital in Boston, United States. And MGH is a clinical service and biomedical research facility, as well as Harvard Medical School's largest teaching hospital. As I had indicated earlier, the award aims to develop the next generation of leaders in academic and clinical medicine in South Africa. It does so by enabling talented specialist clinicians and aspiring leaders to experience the specialist clinical service and research environment at MGH and to conduct cut-edge clinical research in collaboration with esteemed research supervisors. Mm. And colleagues at the hospital over a one year period. This is valued at 2.3 million. And as I say, it is very, very important that our people are excellent at home, our medical specialists, they understand the challenges at home, but there is also no substitute for exposure to the global experience. And this is where this award comes in.
0: So, what does it mean to the South African healthcare system to have what you've described? Are doctors being able to spend time at these centers of excellence at MGH and then return to serve local people?
1: Well, and this applies to everything that we do. One advantage of bringing global experience is that we realize that we are not an island in ourselves. There are parallels and differences with other people. But what this brings immediately to the country, it's already the next generation of leaders in the field. We bring in, we have thought leaders coming out of these groups Mm. who are uh, experts with the ability to teach future health specialists that South Africa can continue to be proud of and can enhance on our legacy of innovation and pioneering excellence in healthcare. I think this is what it brings in the country. In addition, it enables top talented specialist clinicians and aspiring leaders to experience the specialist clinical experience and research environment at the hospital in collaboration with colleagues. Mm. So we are ready to meet career specialists who are committed to helping develop the next generation of leaders in academia and in clinical medicine in South Africa. They are expected to come back and thank God all of them have come back. Since 2013, six fellows have been granted opportunities, and they are doing outstanding work in the country.
0: Can we look at some of them? What has stood out for you about the five MGH award recipients to date? We had Dr. Neliswa Gogela, Dr. Shrish Badri, Dr. Brian Orwood and Dr. Sean Chetty. And let's not forget Professor Maswime herself.
1: Well, Absolutely, and I won't take any order except to make a general statement that all of these fellows are now leaders in the clinical research of their fields and leading very groundbreaking research studies and teams. For example, you mentioned Professor Masuine. She has been appointed Associate Professor for Global Surgery at UCT, and she is first becoming one of South Africa's top experts in her field. Dr. Melissa Gogella. I think she was the first one to go, if I'm not mistaken. A trailblazer and a hepatologist. She's completing her PhD in liver disease. Dr. Badri, she's a pediatric gastroenterologist and recently launched the first global study of microbial cancer therapy in pediatric patients with a stable severe acute malnutrition. Mm. Dr. Chetty is an osteologist with special interest in pain management. And has, upon his return, improved the patient's quality of life through teaching, research, prevention, care, and advocacy. And I can go on and on and on. Mm. Dr. Brian Arwood has organized the World's First Post-TD Symposium and Workshop, attracting experts from around the world to grapple with this pandemic and much neglected societal problem. In short, they are doing exactly what the award was intended to achieve.
0: Certainly sounds so, and setting the path for the generations that will follow. But let's also look at the award that was granted to Dr. Dineo the Academic Fellowship Award. What was its purpose and what impact does this award have?
1: Well, Dr. Campanya is the recipient, as you have said, of the Discovery Foundation Academic Award. And the aim was to promote research-focused training and to develop more clinician scientists to benefit for our health care, mm. funding offers a successful applicants the opportunity to undertake a period of study and research towards a master's and doctoral degree and this is what she she's been with at the moment.
0: Yes, incredible work indeed, but a number of the Discovery Foundation alumni are also leading teams at the moment, teams that are on the front line of the COVID-19 pandemic. This must make you very proud. It's an enormous impact they're making.
1: Absolutely. You're quite correct. You know, they are playing a major role in every area of their expertise. Mm. And right now, as we speak, the foundation alumni are among a number of great health, health specialists in the frontiers of fighting COVID pandemic. Some of the interventions that our alumni are involved in include research and some are members of the advisory teams, and Mm. so on. Yes, they are right in the thick of things, and really on behalf of the country, we are very proud of what they have achieved in the service that uh, they have delivered. And if I can end this section just on a general observation that one of the things that uh, has inspired me personally, and I'm sure the same, applies to my colleagues. In the fact that when we started on the transformation sector, we really battled to meet our targets, but we have always believed that those targets are there, find them, encourage them to apply and support them. And I'm delighted to tell you that we have reached a point where we are not in a position to fund everybody Including those very, very deserving people. Since the foundation was founded in 2006, Mm. we have spent 261 million, and I'm proud to say so far we have produced 473 medical specialists. For 2020, we committed 23 million to 39 specialists, which means very soon we would have covered half a million specialists in the country. This is something to celebrate, we
0: believe. Absolutely, and never has it been more important than this historic moment we find ourselves in. Thank you so much, Dr. Mapai, for your time. It's absolutely encouraging to know that South African doctors are supported in this way. And I'm sure they appreciate knowing that Discovery makes it a priority to understand their needs, particularly now as Discovery Foundation alumni, doctors leading in the country's response to COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Mapai. Thanks, Adriani, and keep the good work. Thank you. Stay tuned. Next up, we hear from specialist obstetrician and gynecologist Professor Salome Maswime, prepared to be moved, inspired and motivated. When she was recently profiled in the prestigious Lancet Journal, they called her a dynamic leader in global surgery. Absolutely right. We spoke to her before the COVID-19 pandemic. She's the recipient of the prestigious Discovery Foundation Massachusetts General Hospital Fellowship Award, president of the South African Clinician Scientist Society, and she recently joined the University of Cape Town's Faculty of Health Sciences in her new role as the head of global surgery. Well, the titles just keep piling on (laughs) in front of me is Professor Salome Maswime. It's really a pleasure to have you here. You're a busy woman, and so Mm -hmm. to be able to sit down with you is an incredible privilege. Thank you very much. Firstly, congratulations are in order. Thank you. You must be feeling on top of the world.
3: (laughs) Some days I am, but like a lot of adjusting and starting a new life, basically. So, yeah, there are some anxious moments, but overall, very happy with what I'm doing now.
0: But I want us to start by going back. What influenced you to become a
3: doctor? Just give me a sense of your upbringing, your world Mm. that led you to this point. Okay, so if we go back childhood (laughs) properly... I came from an academic family. My father, you know, became a professor when I was probably about six, seven years old. And so as a family, like that was all we kind of knew. And he'd go to graduations and he'd take us along. And that was just like, okay, I wanna be an academic. one day I love this environment. I didn't want to be a doctor initially. I just, you know, I wanted to do more exciting things. I wanted to be famous (laughs) (laughs) and I was actually more into arts, drama. And so somewhere towards grade 11, I decided, okay, I think I want to be a doctor, make a difference, contribute to humanity. And that's what took me into the field But when I got there, it wasn't what I expected. And it was just about, you know, it was patient care, but it wasn't a creative space where you could express yourself, where you could really feel that I'm doing something that will change something. And so, you know, toiled for a few years wanting to quit medicine and eventually... Completed my degree. And after completing my degree, I thought this is my big break. Planned to do performance studies, all of that. But very quickly, I got lonely and felt I'm a doctor now and Mm. uh, this is what I want to do with my life. So that's when I did my community service in Greytown Hospital and just for the first time interacting with patients that really need you, appreciate you, and seeing just that excitement working in the labor ward, you know, more than anything and giving happy babies, screaming babies <laughs> to their mothers. thats That was the highlight. But pretty soon afterwards, patients started dying and that was like how do I cope with this? I feel bad if a mom dies and the baby dies. Mm. And that was really the beginning of this journey that I'm on right now. Yeah.
0: So what you describe there, is that what persuaded you to go further into the specialization?
3: Yeah. So the first thing was just that I felt inadequate, Mm -hmm. you know, like I haven't been trained to manage all of these complications. I'm in a place where, okay, if a woman needs to be referred to a higher level of care, The next hospital is 75 kilometers away, but the ambulance doesn't always come on time. You know, one woman, we waited eight hours for her to be airlifted to the nearest hospital. And she died, you know, eight hours later, Mm. just before, you know, the helicopter arrived. So first I felt, okay, I need to learn more. And this is, I want to specialize and go, you know, equip myself And after specializing, I decided that's when the academic family came back. And it was just like, you're a doctor now, but, (laughs) you know, you're still not good enough. And that's when I decided I wanted to do a PhD and looked at women who died from cesarean section complications Mm.
0: So as part of your career, you finish your degree, you do your in-service, you're practicing Mm. uh, and then the academia as you say comes back in, so Mm. you're uh, doing your research on the one hand and also practicing on the other, Uh, was this a good balance? Did you find that it gave you what you needed to keep feeding this passion?
3: So it was very hard because you're literally doing two jobs at the same time. When I did the PHD I took two years off and did that full time. When I went back, I was employed by Department of Health and they wanted me to see patients and that's what I was being paid for. Mm. But now I discovered this new passion for research and I just couldn't sustain doing both at the same time, especially because my my evaluation on how well I work was based on my patient care and not on all the research that I was doing. So at that point, that's when the decision came that I needed to go somewhere where I could strengthen my research skills, go to a place where I could work with world leaders and applying for that MGH opportunity was the beginning of that
0: Yes, yes So that is your career in a yes. nutshell Leading up to the MGH award Yes right. Yeah. So I want to stay with this work that you were doing yeah. This opportunity to serve And mm. offer communities this yes. level of care It clearly is very important to you yes. Speak to me about the significance that it holds in your life
3: so my my thing was I really loved working in the labor ward, and mm. I felt you know I make a difference and you know i I did my best, and women would come to me and they're like, "Oh, you're the doctor that you know did this?" and I really loved that, but there was advocacy missing and being on the world stage, and so starting to realize that you know there's w h o there are all sorts of organizations where decisions are made as well. And there aren't enough Africans who are on those platforms. And yet we understand that we've got the highest burden of disease, we've got the highest mortality rates in Africa, but not enough people are there advocating for patients. And so I really felt that, you know, that's something unique that I could bring. Uh, I've done enough research to state some of the statistics that I have from my own data and to speak about what we could do or what could be done in partnership and collaboration with other institutions that are looking to improve outcomes.
0: Yes. What are the top yeah. line insights you can share with us from your research? Good.
3: So at first, and it's, it's, it's been a journey and, you know, at first we looked at why women were dying from caesarean section complications. We thought it's because, you know, what the doctor does in theatre. But very quickly we realized that it was a lot of health systems systems, having women who already have maternal complications, once they're in labor, they're already bleeding by the time you take them to theater and they're just going to bleed more. So there were a lot of things that could be done differently from a healthcare perspective, Mm. but it's in an overstretched system where you don't have enough nurses to look after the patients. The worst case that was part of my study was a woman who literally died in, in the ward and no one had noticed that she was bleeding. And this is an award with nurses and and doctors coming in and out, but because they're so overstretched, no one saw this. So that was the the beginning. And mm. we started thinking giving access to cesarean section in Africa would improve outcomes. And so we wrote an opinion piece for the conversation, literally saying, you know, give access to cesarean sections and more women, more African women will, will survive. But pretty soon we realized that it was now the complications after the cesarean section that were now killing Mission. women. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't enough just to say, here's the surgery. You needed to make sure that the quality of the system itself is equipped to manage complications that women have. Mm. So, what made you apply
0: for <laughs> the m t h award? Actually, how did you hear about it, and how did you feel yes. when you re- when you received it?
3: Yeah, so I mean, I was with a friend at church, and you know she said. There's this opportunity, do you want to apply for it? And I was like, "Oh no, I don't qualify." You know, oh. <laughs> just, just trust uh, us as women, we discount ourselves. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so immediately just like, I don't think so. Uh and she said, "No, you probably make a good candidate." Uh but now the next question is, what happens to my family? Uh my husband, my children you know, what's going to happen. And I remember saying to my husband that, like, there's this opportunity, it's Massachusetts General Hospital, the best hospital in the world, they say, and Harvard University. And he was just like, "Okay, we'll support you. Just apply. We'll do whatever you need, you know. And at that time, we thought it was going to be simple, you know, just kind of Pick, you know, pack up when you get it and go. But there were a lot of, like, you don't both leave your jobs at the same time and go look mm. after kids overseas. And mm. so it was a bit of a process and journey. But that initial go for it, uh, we back you up 100%. Talking to my mom and she's just like, do this, my father was was what I needed to to make the decision to Where apply. were you when you heard the news that you've been awarded yes. this opportunity? So I was I was sitting in a maternal mortality meeting at Chris Honey Paraguay, very formal meeting. It runs for an hour. Mm -hmm. And I get this email that you've been awarded this. (laughs) And I want to scream, but you can't. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd like waited for the meeting to end. And I started like texting a few people. Then immediately afterwards, walk to my office, close the door and like call my husband and my dad. I'm like, we're going to America. (laughs) <laughs> beautiful. That's so yeah. beautiful. Uh and so you
0: took your little boys with you yes, and went yes. and spent this year yes. in a completely different environment. Yes. Wow. Yeah. yeah. How would you describe that period?
3: So it was amazing on so many levels and challenging as well. I mean, the amazing part was just working with people that are so passionate about what they do and them recognizing my talent and just suddenly being in a place where people are like what you do is amazing and I think you know, from where I came from, I didn't have that affirmation and yeah. people wanting to partner with me on what I do. So that was the first step. Just you've got mentors, you've got people who believe in you, and they are linking you literally with world experts. And I was doing stillbirth research and mm-hmm. they organized meetings that meet with this person. I mean, the one meeting that stood out, they took me to the Reagan Institute to meet somebody there about, you know, discussing my work. The Reagan Institute is a partnership between MIT and Massachusetts General Hospital. And this is like I'm with Harvard and MIT in the same room, you know, and they're (laughs) listening to me, you know, so it was opportunities like that. And pretty soon I started getting invited to meetings in Geneva, New York, where literally I was either the only South African or African in the room. And they, as an expert in, in my field. It's so, just amazing.
0: So what's yeah. been the impact of the 2016 2.1 yeah. million rand yeah. Discovery Foundation MGH award on your life, you know, on your yes. personal self, on your professional yeah. Self. self?
3: Yeah. So I grew a lot because in that one year, you know, you literally, somebody gives you the space, the time and the money and they're just like, Do what you want to do with this opportunity. And so I went there with all this energy and literally opportunity to do all the things that I'd wanted to do before, but in such an enabling environment. Mm -hmm. So getting onto the world stage was, you know, one of the big things. People listen to me, people you know, people invite me for for things and that was one of the the big things and finding that confidence that I can be a voice, I can advocate because there are very few people doing it in this space and there Mm -hmm. are few people that look like me and that are African you know, doing this in this Space. I learned to multitask, to juggle. I was with my children there. But there were also people that were just like, OK, we know you don't have childcare. We'll help you with this. And just learning how you build relationships, how you mentor yeah. from a place where you're not that old professor sitting somewhere, but you are like professors would be like, you know, can I look after your kids so wow. you can go to this meeting? And it just changed my perspective that that's the person I wanna be. I don't wanna build walls, <laughs> you know, but accessible, helping people achieve their dreams and yeah, learning how to navigate as a family and mm-hmm. saying this is how we'll support each other, you know, children helping them adjust and all of that. So growing as a mom and and all of that. So it's been phenomenal and Came back to South Africa and I was headhunted for three jobs and a had to decide. <laughs> yes. And you picked UCT. I know, picked UCT. The
0: head of global, global surgery. surgery. Yes. Amazing. But I just want to talk about your children for a moment. Yes. Being a mother to two young boys, does yes. it further fuel your passion for yeah. this particular specialization around maternal um, yes. health care?
3: Yeah, definitely. Because... When I decided I wanted to be an obstetrician, it was because of what I saw women experiencing. Mm. And a few years later, I had had two cesarean sections myself. I knew how, you know, how how scary the whole experience is. And no one asks you, you know, are you, how are you doing? Are you worried about anything? Are you anxious about anything? So it, and, and seeing African women die, because that is the reality and understanding that Women in other parts of the world are not dying from these conditions. So, you know, just because I can afford health care that might protect me from, from some of these things, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't advocate and work hard to improve health systems for other women that look like me. Yes.
0: Well, I personally think that the fact that such an award exists um, is absolutely forward thinking on the part of discovery. Do you agree?
3: Yes, completely, completely. Mm. And they've been amazing in just how they've supported me, created you know, this opportunity and it's it's been a game changer for me. Yes. So tell us about key moments that stand out from your career, those yeah. moments that you would describe as truly defining. So the first, obviously, was the one I explained when I decided that, you know, I need to, to specialize and improve my skills and I want to be a doctor now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the second one was... Finishing, you know, when I finished specializing and I was Mm -hmm. now a gynecologist and up to that time, my decision was I wanted to go into private practice, make money, (laughs) pay off my debts, you know, all of those dreams that we have as young aspiring specialists. But, you know, it took about a month or two to realize that that's not where my heart is. Mm -hmm. My heart is in the public service. It's in research. It's in academia. And I literally had to decide that this is what I want to do with Mm -hmm. my life. And then the third opportunity was being at MGH. And, you know, coming back especially, it was what are you going to do with your life? You've had all this experience are you going to go back and do exactly what you were doing before? Yes. And so having been in a year with the Center for Global Health overseas and learning about global surgery, which is a new discipline worldwide, you mm. know, what UCT offered me was literally an opportunity to start something new. And it resonated with me because this wasn't just about looking after women with cesarean sections, but Looking after everyone who has had any form of surgery, surgery and advocating for them. Mm, wow. So what are your
0: intentions to give back? As you said, you sat with these big questions yes. about how you're going to use this opportunity yeah. you've been given to improve, mm-hmm. to mentor and to give back.
3: I mean, on one, it's innovation and finding African solutions for the problems we have in Africa and, mm. you know, have created a team at, at UCT that is dynamic, excited and and doing amazing things. I said with. Biomedical engineers with politicians, and what can we do to improve surgical outcomes and to create surgical leadership? Yeah. But I'm with students who come into my office and they're just like, I want a mentor, I need somebody that will understand what I'm going through. And it's being in that position where I can be that person, you yes. know, uh, to people who either need mentorship or need supervisors or a go ahead literally to do something that everyone has told them, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. And so apart from all the exciting things that I do with my work, you know, the other part is sitting with ordinary people and just saying, let's plan. How can we do this? Who can I connect you with? What's your next step, you know, and yes. just making them feel normal and and that they have big dreams and that it's possible for them to fulfill them. Yes. What does it mean? As you said, this is
0: a fairly new discipline and you're, of course, uh, heading it up at UCT. Yes. But what impact is yeah. our understanding and the development of this discipline of global surgery? Yes. How, what impact is it going to have on the provision yeah. of healthcare?
3: So the first thing is, People have been dying from surgical complications. We all know someone, a relative, a friend who died after an operation. And what global surgery does is to advocate for those people and highlight it. You know, know, we live in, in an environment where, yes, there are a lot of infectious diseases, but the number of people dying of cancer a lot more than those who are dying from Mm. HIV and other infections. And so, you know, the one part is what can we learn from the infectious diseases community? But the other part is... Just because no one doesn't know the numbers, it doesn't mean it's okay. So it's starting to highlight advocate working with policymakers to say, you know, gradually, what can we bring as UCT? What can we advise on? What can we do to improve health systems? Mm. And then implementation is really an important part of what we do because we don't want to be... We're a university and we're piling, you know, papers, research is coming out and yet we're not changing anything. So I'm working with a dynamic team that is looking for opportunities to do that and partnering with industry as well and saying, okay, fine, you're partnering with us as a knowledge partner. Let's pilot this because no one has done this in Africa. No one has done it in the world. And maybe we might just be able to find a solution for something that has been killing a lot of our patients.
0: Absolutely. In fact, you're an advisor and a consultant for many institutions, including the World Health Organization. And these are important platforms for this change that you speak of to be implemented and trickled down to where it's needed most.
3: Yes, yeah. And it's been over the years, you know, you get invited onto a committee, you know, First, it was just local committees at 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 WITS at the university where I was working, and before I knew it, it's like okay, there's a South African committee on this, WHO, there's this technical task team on on this. Can you get involved? Yeah, and it's it's just been growing your advocacy,
0: and if we are to look specifically at uh, women's health rights, yes. What can we do to further support uh, women's health rights?
3: As a community, we need to first acknowledge that women shouldn't be dying from conditions that don't kill other women or that women don't die from in in other places. And the advocacy is going to start with us as mothers, as women, Mm. husbands, you know, brothers saying we can improve Health we can improve our health outcomes, and until you 've got a criti- critical mass of people saying it's our responsibility to to make a noise you know so that someone can hear this uh you know that's 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 the beginning, so mm-hmm. you need communities that understand that you know i 'll say it in my language that when somebody dies. You know, we often say that it was God's will and we walk away. And yet yeah. I've worked in an environment where we knew there are certain things that went wrong. Hmm. You couldn't pinpoint it and say, I blame this person. But there was a whole system that needed to to be improved. So it's community advocacy and educating the community and Educating community on, on health literacy as well, so that people walk into a hospital understanding their conditions and what they need to do. That if you've got a lump in your breast, you don't come, you know, uh, after it's really grown. And at that time, all we can say to you is it's not operable, you know, so it's that. But it's also sitting down with policymakers and saying, what can we do together? We understand these diseases from from an academic perspective, can we work together to strengthen mm. the health system? Yes, at a
0: clinical level yes. and start to implement these changes as yes, well. Yes. Um, you've received numerous awards. Yes. I remember the doctor's awards yes. and, and so on. Um, yeah. and you're being recognized for your tenacity, for mm. your commitment to maternal health and all yeah. this ongoing research. Yeah. What does it mean? What does it mean to you to be recognized in this way?
3: The recognition gives the validation to continue, you know, and I try not to get stuck in there. Everyone recognizes and sees (laughs) it. Uh, I think the real painful reality is you come back from winning an award and somebody else has died, you know, in your real world. Something else has happened that, you know, that this injustice is, is not over and I think that keeps me sober-minded about what I do, that mm. we haven't won yet. We're we, we are on our way. It's nice, of course, to get the acknowledgement to continue. And you get more partners who want to work with you, so that's great. But I don't get lost in the excitement of the moment and think I've done it. I I haven't. Mm. Yes, the actual work
0: is still constant, is is on the go all the time. I know that you've just started, um, you've made this transition to being part of the UCT faculty. But what
3: lies ahead for you? What are some of your dreams for the future? So I've always had big dreams. How do you change the world? And I like working with uh, international organizations and these are, you know, your WHO, World Bank and all of that, that is, you know, United Nations, I don't know, will end up one day. But I like working with them, especially as an advisor and trying to find solutions. Mm. I like academia as well. And, you know, wanting to put my this game forward and getting you know recognized as as an as an academic who has really had an impact mm. uh globally you know nationally but wanting to to get that so i don't have your clear this <laughs> 20, years, 20 years this is the office i want to occupy mm. but anything that will allow me mm. to have influence over especially over health matters and in education, I'll I'll be satisfied if, you know, whatever I do improves the quality of education mm-hmm. that we offer as a country, as well as uh, improving the health system across populations.
0: Right. What is your closing message? I want to give you that opportunity to just say what it is that you'd like to leave our
3: listeners with. The one thing that I constantly, you know, And which I've said probably a few times is just we need to be ourselves and do what we believe we've been called to do. And, you know, my biggest struggle is finding people who've got big dreams and have been told, don't pursue it, you're not good enough. And I think especially to a lot of women, to say to them, your dreams are valid, you know, be who you're meant to be in life and and go for that. Don't quit because you're a mother and life is complicated. You know, I've juggled with my family and, like, this is our family experience. We might not look like every other family, but we're doing this. And my boys have adjusted to that. Uh, but also just for, for women to know that it's okay to dream big and to pursue what they really feel they were, mm-hmm. they were called to do in life. Powerful. Thank, Thank you, you so much, All Professor right. Salome Maswime. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Stay tuned. Up next, I chat to Dr. Dineo Banya. She's a nuclear medicine physician working at the cutting edge of medicine and computer science. How's the support she's received through the Discovery Foundation allowed her to progress even further? We spoke to her before the COVID-19 pandemic. With me now to share her incredible story and to tell us all about what it's like to work at the cutting edge of medicine and computer science is Dr. Dineo Mpanya. You'll be astounded at the way in which she's using machine learning algorithms to assess and identify high-risk cardiac patients and ensure they have access to the right levels of care. Dineo, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. What a combination, a combination of disciplines. But before we get into your work and what it is that you do, I want to find out more about who you are, who this radiant, petite woman sitting in front of me, who is a powerhouse, uh, is from. Who is Dineo Mpanya? So Dineo
4: Mpanya is from Durban, Lamonville. I was born and raised in Devon. Yeah. And then I moved to Johannesburg in 2013. That's when I started specializing. So I specialized in nuclear medicine and currently I'm based with my PhD. So I'm a full-time PhD student. Are you loving that? A lot, a lot. It's amazing. (laughs) It's the best gift I could ever have. Yes.
0: Yes. What would you say were the turning points, you know, that... That steered you into this discipline when you were a child, when you were growing up?
4: Okay, so while I was growing up, really, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I remember at the time when I, I would see air hostesses, I would like, yeah, this is me. This is me in the future. That's glamorous. And then, yes. And then what kind of disappointed me was, I think then, um, they were very strict on height restrictions. So um, fast forward in high school. We had a tour around the now University of Guzulu-Natal and uh, we were introduced to medicine. So we saw like skeletons and I was like, "Okay, could this be real? So since then, I've always been curious and I wanted to know more about medicine. And that's when I actually enrolled for medicine. So I ended up in UCT and then I completed my
0: undergrad there. And then after, I started specializing in nuclear medicine. But you are broader than that. I'm looking at your dress and thinking, did she make that herself? Because ever since you were a child, you've just had a great interest in things like fashion and the arts, even though you went into the sciences. Absolutely.
4: Like I I draw, I sketch, I paint, I design. So anything artistic is me. And I still design my own clothes. Unfortunately, I'm not wearing one of my own (laughs) outfits, but I definitely um, design my own clothes. It's quite a passion. It's something that I just do. I mean, I could stay up until three in the morning just drawing and design. So
0: it's something that I'm really passionate about. So there you are, you're studying. And as you said, you're currently doing your PhD full time Mm. now. But what influenced this area, your interest in this area of specialization in nuclear medicine? And I think, what is nuclear medicine? Let's start there. Yeah, let's. Definitely start there. So nuclear medicine involves
4: using radioactive atoms. So if you think back to physics, the periodic tables, yes. you have elements there that are radioactive. So we use them as nuclear physicians to diagnose and treat illnesses. So it's it's really, really small or small amounts or traces of, of these radioactive atoms, and then we introduce them into the human body. And then once the person has been, say, for instance, injected or they've inhaled these radioactive molecules, then we put them in a camera and we are able to acquire images depicting the function of the organs within the body so it's highly specialized As
0: radioactive
4: Particles move through the body? Absolutely. For instance, say there's a cancer patient and the doctor wants to know how far the cancer has spread in the body, then that patient could possibly come for a bone scan where we check and see whether there's actually disease in the bones or we'll do a PET scan known as a positron emission tomography where we look at the entire body to see how far the cancer has spread. So once we've done that, the doctor is then able to tailor the the treatment according to the stage of the disease. For instance, if it's still local In the breast, and someone with breast cancer, then the patient will obviously be sent for surgery. If, uh, for instance, the cancer is now everywhere, say in the lungs, then the patient will then uh, have chemo. So we are able to direct therapy in that manner.
0: Wow, because every cancer is different. Absolutely. Every human being, every treatment, every disease that Definitely. they have is different. Yes, yes. That's so fascinating. Mm. And that's all as a result of watching the activities of these little particles. I, I like that word because we actually call it activity. Yes, <laughs>
4: that's actually a formal it. We say there's increased activity in the bones, increased activity in the lungs. And then that's how you tell that there's actually disease in that particular organ.
0: I mean, you've just given us a brief, brief summary, but I can see where the attraction would be. What did you love about this particular discipline that made you want to give more to it? So
4: what happened was, I remember back then in medical school um, in Cape Town, uh, we had a seminar hosted by one of the lecturers in, in the nuclear medicine department. So uh, when I got there, at that time when I walked in, they were showing images of the heart, yeah. but it was cut in, in different slices and there were all these beautiful colours. And since then I I was so captured. I was like, okay, what is this? And then then I started googling. I wanted to know more about nuclear medicine such that while I was in Durban, I took um, I took leave. And then for five days, I came to Johannesburg. I stayed with a friend and I wanted to visit one of the nuclear medicine departments. So I ended up um, at Charlotte Machegi Academic Hospital and I was there for five days. I was looking at what they were doing. I was like, okay, this is for me. I love this. Another thing that I actually liked about it was the fact that we work a lot with computers and I love computers. I don't know. I think they
0: also Love me (laughs) back. It's just one of those things. (laughs) So that's how you fell into it. But how unique is it? How unique is your work in South Africa? I guess what I also want to know is how many are there doctors such as yourself uh, working with nuclear medicine and how common is this approach? To, to medicine and healing?
4: Mm, it's actually not a lot. Um, I, I mean, I stand to be corrected, but I think in the country, we probably have maybe 200 or less than that of uh, the specialists, but like I said, I stand to be corrected, but it's mm-hmm. really not a lot and I think the main reason why that's the case is because um, as medical students, you don't really get an opportunity to see what the, the nuclear medicine uh, practitioners do. You only really find out perhaps, like I said, with maybe one seminar and that's it, and if at that time you didn't quite listen to what was going on, you completely get lost. Mm. And for me, I think I was fortunate enough because when I walked in, you know, something captured my attention and I started Googling. I wanted
0: to know more about the subject. What about the facilities, the healthcare facilities that we have where you work, in mm-hmm. fact, and the role that you play there? Because you're based at the Faculty of Science, the School of Computer Science and Applied Mathematics at Wits University.
4: Okay, so I'm kind of like everywhere right now. Oh. <laughs> so I am a nuclear physician and I'm based um, at Charlotte Machege Johannesburg Academic Hospital, which is affiliated with the University of the Witwatersrand. So what, I, what happened was I wanted to do my PhD in nuclear medicine, um, doing image recognition, mm-hmm. whereby you actually allow a computer to interpret these nuclear medicine images. Unfortunately, we realized with my uh, professor that we don't have a database with all these images because with any machine learning, learning project, which is something I wanted to do, you need lots and lot of patient data, exactly. So then the recommendation was I need to approach other departments and see whether they have a database and then start using that data. So I ended up in cardiology because they've got a database with about 11,000 patients. And my supervisor, because it's a machine learning project, is from the School of Computer Science and Applied Mathematics. So I'm actually a part of three (laughs) departments right now.
0: Yeah. A great case study for bringing in all the these different disciplines Mm. then absolutely in solving this healthcare Mm. challenge. So let's talk about the Discovery Foundation Awards. You've been selected to receive one of these. Yes tell us about the award and how does it feel? Okay, so the award is for,
4: I would say, anyone interested in research because they consider master's students as well as uh, PhD students. So I applied as a PhD student and it was so simple, all you needed to do really was send a synopsis of your research project and what you intend to do once you've qualified um, with your PhD. So I also wrote you know, a few notes and I sent it via email and wow, and then I was was told that I've won the award. So, knowing that I've won the award, I realized that I actually had an opportunity to yeah. take unpaid leave. So, I took unpaid leave since um, last year. March mm-hmm. until the end of the year this year until December so essentially I'm not employed so to speak yes. um, I can read from anywhere I can study from anywhere and it has been such a, a blessing because I'm able to attend online classes I can even go overseas to attend conferences, it's it's such a blessing I mean I don't even have the words to describe how, how much of
0: a blessing this award has been honestly Yeah, so mm. you get to spend time really thinking and yeah. Living, the research Let's talk about Mm. your your research Mm -hmm. What is it all about? Because the brief description anyway, that I've seen Is about the application of machine learning techniques To Mm -hmm. predict mortality in hospitals And back to hearts and heart failures You said you were Mm -hmm. just intrigued by the hearts And the database that you have Yes,
4: yes I think I've always, like I said initially um, When I walked in during the the seminar The New Climate Medicine seminar It was actually the heart images that I saw And I've always wanted to be like someone looking at Nuclear Cardiology And luckily my project also is on patients with heart failure. Yeah. So what I'll be doing is I'll be using a data set with patients known with heart failure and I'll be using that data set to predict outcomes such as death and rehospitalization. because already the database that we have, you already know which patients died and which didn't and we know who actually was admitted, when and so forth and after how long. So now you can use that same data mm-hmm. to train a model, to recognize patterns, to say, oh, we had a patient who was male um, um, who had maybe the, blood, the the heart was pumping out 45% of the blood that's in the heart, or maybe they had a low blood level and therefore they died. So the next time a patient like that comes, then we'll know that this is a high-risk patient. So ultimately, once I've created this predictive model, mm. we'll be able to risk stratify patients to say, you are high risk and you are low risk for disease. And those that are high risk can be seen more often and preferably by a more experienced doctor and starting on aggressive therapy at an earlier stage and because we have so many patients now diagnosed with hypertension, hypertension is actually a number one killer here in South Africa and it's a problem because you initially, um, in the early stages of the disease, you don't have any symptoms Mm. so then, you know, people end up dying and they didn't even know that they actually had a problem. So if we can actually identify high-risk patients at an earlier age and tell them uh, therapy accordingly, I'm hoping that we were able to prevent death, yes. hopefully. <laughs> yes,
0: oh, yeah. What noble work. So practically speaking, for instance, for mm. cardiologists yeah. in the healthcare space, mm. uh, it will make a huge difference to a patient's life. Absolutely, because even in terms of cardiology, we don't have enough cardiologists
4: in the country. And yet yeah. again, a whole lot of them end up in the private sector. So imagine now if you're able to actually triage patients to so say you are high risk, you can be seen at a tertiary level institution like uh, Charlotte Machege and if you are low risk you can be seen at Edenville and less often so it will actually um, assist in terms of spreading out this burden of patients you mm-hmm. know, who have cardiac problems
0: And what does it mean for what we know about lifestyle diseases and our ability to treat things like heart conditions from an African perspective?
4: Okay, I'll say at the moment, my focus will actually be on primary prevention because the data set that I'm working with, it's patients who already have the disease. And we're not saying that nothing can be done, but they already have the condition as we speak. So for me, now my focus is on primary prevention, which is um, something that I'm passionate about yet again. Mm. Uh, what we did last year, uh, we had a World Heart Day event here in Johannesburg, and I'm also part of the executive committee. And then we organized a 5K and an 8K run. And um, we invited members of the public and on site after the, the event, we could actually screen them for conditions such as hypertension, meaning that we'll check their blood pressure, we check their sugar levels all for free. So for me, that's my contribution. I think I'm just one of those people that are eager to fight this pandemic of cardiovascular illnesses.
0: With this incredible award, here you are just trailblazing and helping to build on this discipline, this mm. very young discipline. Mm. You have received this Discovery Foundation award, which gives you an academic fellowship award to the value of 800,000 rand. Mm. It's as if the world is your oyster. It what is. are your dreams? What does the future
4: hold for you? <laughs> I think I just have too many options right now. I think that's another priceless gift that I've received, um, You know, time. I have time to observe things around me and try and come up with solutions. For instance, in our public sectors, we don't actually have electronic health record systems. Cardiology is one of the few. I mean, they've had a database since 2009, but the rest of the departments and the rest of the hospitals around Africa, they don't have databases. And that becomes a problem when it comes to activities such as conducting research, because I, I for instance, I, I publish a lot, but um, well, I don't have a lot of papers, but I, I'm working. <laughs> I'm helping a lot of like master's students mm-hmm. and I'm also uh, working with a lot of Collaborators, And you find that more often than not, when you publish, they're like, um, we sent to international journals, they're like, "Uh, we already know what's so peculiar about this. So imagine now if we've had all these databases and we've been collecting the data routinely as part of the um, workflow of the clinical setting, but we're not doing that. So I would say this is my biggest dream. I would love to establish databases around all the public uh, hospitals as well as possibly link it across Africa. So imagine the robustness of the data if we have data on African patients and we're able to implement policy based on evidence, Mm
2: -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But
4: I mean, it's far-fetched, but it's something that I would really like to do. And also now with nuclear medicine, it's a passion of mine. I would love to continue um, imaging the heart. I mean, there's special cameras now that... um, dedicated to taking images of the heart where you just sit on a chair. Ten minutes later, you know, you're able to assess how much blood is actually going to the heart yeah. and whether the vessels that um, around the heart are blocked or not, all within 10 minutes. So that's also something that I would love to do. And I still want to draw. I want to sketch a lot of things. I, there's so many things that I really <laughs> want to do and there isn't enough time. So these are just maybe the top three in my list.
0: Yes. Mm. Oh, Dynamite from Lamontville. Mm. Yes, yes. Indeed. <laughs> thank you so much. Really, you're a true inspiration and congratulations. Thank you so much. And thank you for the invitation. I've had the privilege of speaking to a number of doctors supported by the Discovery Foundation while we have recorded the Discover Healthier podcast series. I have to say that every time I speak to one of them, I'm left completely inspired. If you've enjoyed this podcast series, then be sure to look out for all the other episodes in the Discover Healthier podcast series. I've interviewed experts on themes as varied as debunking diabetes and getting a handle on heart disease to understanding the world of healthcare and going to hospital. We've also investigated the role we all play in preventing the overuse of antibiotics. Then we delved deeply into mental illness and mental well-being. And we have episodes on nurturing healthy moms and babies and raising healthy children. We've also explored a couple of other fascinating projects supported by the Discovery Foundation. I'll never forget the moving interviews I had with people from the Umtombo Youth Development Foundation, which is turning rural youth into healthcare professionals, all to be found on episode 12. In episode 13, I found out all about the incredible Thokomela project, which is bringing healthcare to low-income employees on farms and in tourism in Limpopo and Mpumalanga. And if you want to better understand how Discovery is supporting all South Africans through the COVID-19 pandemic – be sure to tune into episodes 14 to 16 and hear about the World Health Organization Global Outbreak Benefit, isolation hotels for COVID-19, free online doctor consultations and support to businesses out there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Discover Healthier brought to you by Discovery Health. Join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Discover Healthier and tag at Discovery underscore SA. You can subscribe to our podcast channel, Discovery South Africa, on your favorite podcast app or visit discovery.co.za to listen to our shows.